from John chapter 6, verse 25. Jesus, the bread of life. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh 
is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Thank you. This morning, and especially if you're visiting, we're particularly glad that you're here. And uh, I'm going to ask everyone um, to help me out a little bit this morning with um, the introduction. So instead of me telling a story or a lame joke or something happened in my life or in someone else's life, uh, I thought it'd be great for us all to participate in our introduction this morning. So you were handed in, uh, handed out um, on your way in a small flyer, just a little handout, and I would like you to turn to the, uh, the blank side uh, with the lines on it. And uh, some of you, or most of you, probably don't have a pen. I suspect not everyone turns up to church these days with pens or pencil. Um, and uh, our Church Life email came late. It was a late edition last night, so not many of you would have got it yet. Um, so if you don't have a pen, just put your hand up really high and Melissa will run around real quick um, and offer you one there. Or you can um, not cheat, but wait for the person next to you to write down their list and then you can borrow their phone. But it just simply says, uh, list anything that you've experienced in God's provision. So just spending a few minutes having a think, how have you experienced God's provision in your life? It may be a particular experience, it may be a number of experiences, it may be really small and a part of everyday life, it may be something really significant and, uh, and massive. But just make a Well, uh, you may think of more things as, uh, as we continue through this passage, and uh, feel free to add to them, add to the list there. Um, at the very least, uh, this will be a wonderful list to take home and maybe use as a guide this week sometime uh, to pray a prayer of thanks uh, for all that God has done for you um, and provided for us, or for you. Well, I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll get into our passage that, uh, that was just read to us. So let's pray. Father, we, um, we come before you as your people. We thank you for the privilege of being able to meet together and to be able to do so freely in this space. We thank you, Father, um, for each one that's here. Uh, none of us are here by accident, and uh, we thank you that you um, draw us to yourself um, through the revelation of Jesus and in the power of your Spirit. And we acknowledge um, you are here amongst us. You live in us, and you live amongst us. And uh, we thank you for the privilege of being able to hear from you through your word. So speak to us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to do things a little bit uh, backwards this morning. Some of you who are really astute and read through the, uh, the, uh, the sermon outlines um, or the upcoming preaching format, um, you'll know that we've actually skipped a part of our John chapter 6 that we're up to in our John series. And uh, we're actually going to be looking at the middle part of John chapter 6 this morning. And then uh, next, over the next two Sundays, Evan will uh, jump back and do the first part of John chapter 6, and then the week after that, um, he'll look at the second part of John chapter 6 and possibly uh, into 7. We'll clarify that. Um, but that's how we're going to be looking at it. 
And uh, I just want to give you that heads up because um, the way the, the Bible writers write, inspired by God, okay, so John is a witness of Jesus, probably one of the closest witnesses of Jesus, and uh, he wanted uh, to write down what he had heard, what he had seen, uh, in order that we might believe in who Jesus is. And he says that very explicitly at the end of this, this gospel that he's written. Um, but, you know, either they either knew what they were doing or they didn't and God did and he did it through them or a combination of both. But it's uh, quite intentional for the order that they write uh, their gospels, the, the Bible writers. And, uh, and there's, no, there's, there's a reason why John has written um, the order that he has. So I just need to explain that a little bit because we're jumping into a passage that's right uh, at the end of something really significant which we haven't looked at yet. Um, This morning, we're going to hear the first of seven I am statements. Seven, it's a nice, neat number. Um, There are actually eight, uh, but seven that have a specific relation to something in the Old Testament part of the Bible. And uh, all seven are recorded here in John's Gospel. And the eighth statement uh, is probably the most significant, is when Jesus simply says, I am who I am, right? Or I am that I am, uh, which we'll get to in a, a few weeks' time. But this first of the seven relates to uh, the symbol of bread or the imagery of bread. And each one of these seven I am statements, uh, they tell us something specifically about who Jesus is. Jesus uses these with the full intention of his audience, those listening to him at the time, fully thinking back to and understanding this imagery uh, and aligning himself with this imagery in order that people might come to understand something about him. In particular, they're specifically Old Testament images. Jesus was revealing his identity. Um, He was doing it slowly. He was doing it in part. Sometimes he would do it quietly and fully. Other times he would just do it sort of shrouded in, you know, you have to really sort of think through and listen carefully as to what he's saying. Uh, And then, of course, as his ministry developed, he became, uh, I guess, um, more and more clear about who he was and eventually uh, fulfilled the purpose for which he was sent, which we'll hear about again this morning. Uh, Of course, when Jesus was revealing something about himself, about his identity, about who he was and why he'd come, uh, not everyone was quick to hear. Not everyone had ears to hear at the time. And John points this out, the the Apostle John points this out really clearly as he writes down the events of Jesus' life and his teachings. In fact, you may have noticed a pattern already. Jesus does something, he says something, and it's always met with some form of either really, dare I say, dumb kind of literalistic response, uh, or um, it's responded with confusion, complete misunderstanding, or it's responded by um, outrage and offence and, and anger and perhaps even confusion. And only do we get glimpses of how uh, one or two people every now and then seem to respond well, seem to respond to understand what it was Jesus was trying to say about himself. And so as we come to this passage once again, it's really important for us, um, as we always do come to the Bible, to understand the context of what's going on at this point in John's Gospel as he records the life of Jesus. Um, The previous verses that we've skipped and that uh, Evan will be sharing with us from next Sunday tell us about two more signs. You know, so far John's been revealing these signs of Jesus. John refers to them as signs. He hasn't actually referred to them as miracles. They are miracles. They're miraculous. Um, But he, uh, and with good reason, 
speaks of them as signs. And these are signs that Jesus shows in miraculous ways. And we need to keep at least the first one in mind of the two that have just happened as we look at our reading this morning. And it's the sign that Jesus gave by miraculously feeding over 5,000 people, hungry people in this crowd. And not only did he feed them, um, he fed them with an abundance of food left over. And it all started with uh, a a schoolboy's lunch, for for want of a better term. Two fish and five loaves. You know the story. It's a very familiar story to us. And Evan's going to take us through that next Sunday. But once again, as with most things with Jesus, the signs that he shows in miraculous ways, people seem to be more caught up in the actual miracle uh, than they have been able to understand the point of the sign. And this is exactly what happens with this crowd here, many of them. It happens nearly every time Jesus does the miraculous, actually. And, And why wouldn't it? Think about ourselves for a moment. Think about if we lived... Uh, in Jesus' time. Think about if a miracle worker uh, suddenly turned up in our midst and had done things like this. Why wouldn't we follow someone and love a guy who would, uh, who turns water into wine at a social gathering when the drink runs out? Right? Uh, or someone who transforms a socially outcast woman's life in this amazingly beautiful and insightful way. Or someone who heals a boy who's so sick he's dying there's no hope for him. Or makes a lame person who's been crippled for 38 years, sitting desperately trying to engage with some pagan mystical thing about water stirring up to be healed, and just with his words he says, get up, pick up your mat, you're healed, and the lame man gets up and walks off. And and then he, he then which we haven't looked at yet, but then he turns to this massive crowd of being following him and going, wow, this guy's worth following, and they're with him, and, and, and he, he feeds them in a moment of their desperate need, their immediate Uh, need of food and he feeds them from a mere lunchbox and of course the previous sign right before the passage we just had read he even walks on water I mean who wouldn't follow a guy like this how good is that how amazing except that each one of these signposts that Jesus is trying to get people to see and understand about him and about his heavenly father's kingdom these signs aren't being read They're being misunderstood. They're being confused or they're going over people's heads. So it's no accident that John records these events and nearly every time follows up with an account of this confrontation between religious leaders or perhaps even starry-eyed fans of Jesus, both of whom seem to totally miss the signs altogether. They either get angry with him for blasphemy or they keep pushing him to do more miracles. They keep pursuing him to entertain them with mighty, miraculous works. And John's point is consistently clear. For the most part, people do misunderstand Jesus. They seem to struggle to get him. They seem to struggle to understand him. We were speaking um, just this week uh, to a a contractor that was here as we're looking at um, having the church painted after discussing this for quite some time, and uh, that'll be happening during the July school holidays. We'll still be able to meet in here. Um, but we were talking to this guy and we had a great chat and we are walking around looking at the scope of the works and then um, someone in the group who remained anonymous got onto politics and we were talking about politics and said, you know, well, you shouldn't be talking about politics but, and then we started talking about politics uh, and then we stopped talking about politics, I reminded the person of what they'd said, right, that hey, anyway, we weren't going to talk about politics and the contractor burst out laughing and he says, well, that's right, you don't talk about politics or religion, he says, and here we are talking about politics in a religious building, right. He spun out. 
people just, they just don't seem to understand, you know, they have a very limited understanding of Jesus. And I, just for a moment, I thought, oh, could, something real sharp and punchy and quick and zippy to, 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 to you know, connect with the guy, help the guy. It's gone, the moment is gone, right? <laughs> so we're all just laughing. Um, yeah, that's funny. But for the most part, perhaps you're someone who can remember when you often misunderstood Jesus, well before you'd come to faith and, and for the penny to drop where you fully understand and understood who he was and who he is. And, and, and you're someone like all of us should be getting, still getting to know Jesus each and every day. I, I guess there's a warning for us here, but isn't there? There's a warning for those of us who do know Jesus, for those who have responded to him in faith, and that is this, it's to make sure that we continue to listen, that we continue to discern and to understand him on his terms and not on our terms. And there is a plethora of information today. I mean, everyone's an expert today. Everyone journals. Uh, we call it blogging. I'm glad we changed the word because it's not journalism. Um, but everyone ha has a platform by which to express their opinions about things, to communicate what they think. Um, most times not what they know, what they think or what they think they know. And, and so th there's, even, there's even more scope for misunderstanding Jesus, for misunderstanding who we are as the church the body of Jesus, his people, his hands and feet. And so there's, there's a warning here for us, I think. Even though we know him, even though we've come to faith in him, to make sure we continue to listen to him on his terms, to discern and understand him, and not on our own terms or even experiences. To learn from him, to respond to him, not because of what we'd like him to do for us, but for who he is, and for who it is that he desires for us to become as we trust and follow him. Well, after feeding a massive crowd, uh, Jesus arrives on the other side of the Sea of Galilee uh, after boating across ahead of the crowd and they eventually figure out um, where Jesus has gone and they've jumped in their own boats and they've arrived uh, on the same side uh, of the lake, it's called, it's actually the Sea of Galilee um, and they catch up with him the next day and the crowds are surprised to see him and, and Jesus replies to their shock and this is what he says, just recapping, uh, verses 26 and 27. He says, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. I wonder if you heard it. I wonder if you heard it. Jesus knows what the crowd are after and why they're following him. They just want really another miracle or they're very grateful that he did something amazing and that, they, that their needs were temporarily met, that their needs were temporarily provided for. And Jesus calls them out, doesn't he? In, in fairness now, let's be fair, because you and I are in this crowd. Um, you know, we often, in these stories, sometimes we make the mistake of siding up with it. We think we're with Jesus. <laughs> Look, look at these people. No, we're, we're the ones in the crowd. So in fairness, the crowd asks Jesus what it means to do the same as him. They, they do say that they want, they want to know how do they do the works of God like he does the works of God. And Jesus gets right to the heart of his ministry. This is what he says in verse 28. What's the work of God? He says, well, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The works of God is to believe in the one he has sent. 
Now, you'd think that's an opportunity for Jesus to list off all the good things we should be doing in life, all the good things we should be devoted to and committing ourselves to and sacrificing ourselves for. But he doesn't. He'll say that elsewhere, and, and, and other parts of the Bible will talk about all the good things we get to do and, and ought to be doing and are now free to do in Christ's power and in his strength. But when Jesus is asked to define the works of God, this is what he says. It's to believe in me, is what he's saying. It's to believe in the one that God has sent. So what's the point of Jesus' ministry, certainly at this stage? It's to have people to come to believe that he is the one that God has sent into the world. That he's the one that has been sent into the world by God himself. It's a call for people to believe in Jesus for who he is. And that is God's son and God's promised king, God's promised Messiah. It's the same motivation for why John is even writing this gospel, as I alluded to earlier. It's why he records the signs that Jesus even performs. If you flip to the end of your Bible or scroll the pages across, John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, you know, there's not enough books to contain all the signs. I've just recorded some of them here. And then verse 31, he says, but these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. But the crowds, the crowds, people with you and I in it, both the religious and the non-religious, are just like many of us today. We want the miraculous. We want the powerful. Uh, we want the quick fix, the amazing things, the startling healings. Um, to all our struggles and to all our issues. And, and you can see Jesus' frustration here with that. It's so obvious throughout the passages, uh, and not only here, but in other, the other gospel accounts too. He says it here so clearly, you're only looking for me and following me for what you can get from me. That's the only reason why you're here. And in this case, full stomachs. Food when they had none and they were hungry. And Jesus tells them, tells them that they've missed the point. They're looking for the wrong thing. And they're certainly looking for it, although they're looking for it in the right place. They need to see the signs of Jesus, which he does, to point them towards belief in who he is. That's what they're there for, and we do too. So keep that in mind as we have a listen to what happens next, okay? So Jesus has resolved the issue. He's confronted the crowds. This is how the crowd respond. So the people ask him, verse 30, So what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Are they serious? What sign? What else are you going to do? Did they hear anything Jesus just said? People are so, we are so funny, aren't we, as people sometimes? Jesus just pointed out their failure to recognize the signs. He just, he just put the finger on their pulse saying, you know what, You've only been, you're only looking for me to do more stuff. So what do they do? They ask for another sign for him to do more stuff. It gets worse. Listen to what they say next, verse 31. Uh, their minds go back to a time of God's great provision. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So to be fair, there's a number of them going, okay, I, I kind of see what might be happening here. Um, so they quote their Old Testament Bible at him, and that's a reference in Exodus, in Nehemiah, and in the Psalms. Of course, it's that wonderful, miraculous provision that God gave to his people when they were released from slavery in a miraculous way from Egypt, they were wandering in the desert for some 40 years, and at some point they had no food, and through Moses, God provided manna, or food, it was like this bread-like material 
that came down from heaven and people were saved and they were able to eat. Which is an amazing response that they would think back to that. Just as an aside, you know, I'm surprised at, just, just looking at this. I don't know why they didn't go back a little bit further. God giving them food when they were hungry in the desert, yeah, that's cool. What had he just done for them in saving them from slavery in Egypt? I mean, that's the entire Passover meal. That's what they celebrate. That's what they used to celebrate. That's the greatest Old Testament act of salvation that Jesus refers back to that he himself comes and says he fulfills. In fact, the miracle of feeding the 5,000 was around the time of Passover. Uh, But their minds could only go back to, oh, yeah, there was another time that God gave us food, if that's what's happening here. Hmm. I remember then our ancestors were hungry, but they got fed too. It's amazing. Of all the things in their history they could think of in response to Jesus, they talk about something like that. Truly remarkable. Here Jesus shifts the conversation to where he wants it to go. I can't help but think Jesus is, um, well, he is, isn't he? He he knows the hearts of people. He sees straight through us. I mean, he created us. Um, He knows us. And I can't help but think he knew this is exactly where the conversation will go and it'll get to where he wants it to be. And this is where he he wants it to go and it's exactly the same place um, the sign of feeding 5,000 of them was supposed to also point them. He says, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world of course what's he talking about or more more to the point who's he talking about he's talking about himself have a look at verses 35 and 36 he continues the famous statement i am the bread of life whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty but as i told you you have seen me and still you do not believe Jesus is saying, I'm God's ultimate provision for everything you need, way more than you even realise, most of you. And yet it's the very thing you're searching for. And these signs that appoint you to belief in me, and yet you still, you've seen me, you're in my presence, and you still do not believe. He continues, pick it up from verse 38 to 40. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And what's that? Well, this is the will of him who sent me, that I will lose none of those he has given me, but that I will raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, that is to Jesus, and who believes in him shall have eternal life. And I, says Jesus, will raise them up on the last day. Here it is, the first of seven bold and clear statements of who Jesus is, Just as God provided bread from heaven for his people, for his Israelite people, uh, centuries earlier, now in Jesus, in the person of Jesus standing before his people in this moment, he's providing his very own son as the ultimate sign of his provision, not just for his own people, but for the whole world. The difference, though, is that it's um, in Jesus, is that it's like bread from heaven given to everyone. It's not just limited to his own special people. It's life-giving, it's sustaining in every way, it's fulfilling. And unlike literal bread when you're hungry, the bread of heaven uh, that God sends will will fill you up eternally. It will completely and wholeheartedly satisfy us. 
It, it leaves us hungering or thirsting no more. And, and this is God's will for the world, for you and for me and for anyone else who will see the signs, who will listen to his word and trust and believe and take notice. Think of all the things that you and I think we need from God. Think about all the things that perhaps we don't seem to get from God. Maybe some of you earlier on would like another piece of paper and go, well, there's plenty of things that I haven't been provided for yet. Let me start on that list. Um, I can think of some. Those things, whatever it is that God or we think we need from God, or even the good things that God gives us, are nothing in comparison to what we truly need. Those things that many of us have listed are wonderful provisions, don't get me wrong. God is a heavenly father that cares deeply for his children. And if you've ever had, as an aside, if you've ever had a bad experience of father, uh, let me tell you, if you're, what you're looking for, you will find only in God, your heavenly father, through Jesus Christ. He's a father that gives good gifts to his children. But as good as those things are, and they should drive us to gratitude and to that wonderful relationship we have with him, those things won't save us. Often the things we ask from God and for him to do, they're not things that are going to save us. They won't ultimately satisfy us. What we really need from God, that only he can do, is to know salvation for our sins, our brokenness, our selfishness, maybe our hard-heartedness towards him and our indifference towards others. But we so often want so much more, don't we? Or at least we think we do. I want to say this morning um, from this passage, and I've been challenged myself, of course, whatever it is that you're chasing, whatever it is I'm chasing, it just disappears, doesn't it? It vanishes. Whatever you're hungry for, whatever you find to try and satisfy that outside of Christ, it never truly satisfies. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever realised that yet? I'll give you a real small, trivial example. I don't know why I like camping. I don't know why I love camping. I love the outdoors, right? And, and recently I've, I've really enjoyed sort of, sounds a bit sad, but camping on my own, right? Which means you need a one-man tent, I just sat there last night and looked in my garage and I've got not one, not two, not even three actually. It'd be close to four single-man, single-person tents. Now, why is that? I'm selling some, don't worry. Because each one I get doesn't quite cut it. You know, I, like I lie in it and I go, yeah, this one's a bit, bit low. There was one that was like this far off my face. And I woke up the next morning and it was just drenched in my own breath water, you know, like, you. This is why it's single, it's why Melissa doesn't come with me for this sort of camping. And it's not all that often, by the way. Uh, but other one, other one I got was really high but really narrow, you know, so I was sort of like this. Um, there's others that aren't waterproof, some that are, some that weigh too much, and all these things go on. It's just a small example of the things we think we need, we try and achieve, and we think, well, th this will help me in this pursuit, or whatever it is I'm looking for uh, in camping by myself. Um, do you know what I really like about camping? I actually like spending time with God alone. I've actually found this is a relatively new thing for an extrovert, and I actually enjoy it. And the whole point of going camping alone is to actually uh, to enjoy the outdoors and at times to line the tent and to pray and to read and to think about God and come up with um, different ideas and listen to Him and so on. That's the purpose of it. But we're always trying to look for other things, aren't we? 
and they never satisfy, no matter what we get. Nothing is ever right. Nothing is ever perfect. Well, that, that's, in, that's a small example of how it is in so many ways in our lives. Maybe you're someone who's still searching in all the wrong places. Maybe you're missing the signposts pointing you to Jesus. We chase after all these things and experiences in the vain hope that surely one of them at least, surely one at least, maybe a couple at best, will bring us satisfaction. No wonder we're left hungry. No wonder we're left wanting. No wonder we'll move to the other side of the lake to try and hunt down Jesus and find to see if there's something else he can do for us. In verse 48, he says it again, in case the crowd missed it the first time. Here's what the sign is all about, that most of them seem to miss, the sign of feeding the 5,000 and of Jesus' declaration that he is the bread of life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers, they ate the manna in the desert, sure, and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a person may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, they will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, at this point, and as he continues... It gets a little weird, it gets a little gross, a bit strange. In fact, even Melissa, as we were reading it, sort of said to me, what, what, what was the word? You used the word gross, I think. Anyway, she said, well, this is getting a bit gross. Um, and, and you can sort of understand why at this point in the story, people in the crowd are starting to grumble and mutter away to themselves, verse 52, because it does sound weird. It sounds really strange. What's he saying? And, and there are um, certain very small parts of, or um, specific parts of um, the, the broader church who actually... Um, have taken this, this teaching quite literally about eating uh, the bread, uh, the body of Jesus uh, and drinking his blood. But what he's talking about here, it, it's quite simple. It's something that still lies ahead of him at this point in, of his ministry. He's talking about his death. He's talking about his death on the cross. And it's the same symbol, obviously, bread and wine, or bread and juice in our case, it's the same symbolism that we use every time we share in community together, uh, communion together. This bread is my body, which is broken for you. This cup is my blood, which is given for you. It's, it's not about to happen in John's Gospel. Uh, we don't come across it uh, for another 13 or 14 chapters. But when it does, the disciples at least, and no doubt some of the crowd, this will click for them. This will click for them. They'll stand there and they'll see the promised Messiah, the one they'd put their hope and faith and trust in, the miracle worker, the amazing teacher, strung up like a criminal on a cross in between two other deserved, uh, or criminals who uh, deserved the title. And it'll dawn on them. Oh, this is what he meant. Particularly for the disciples. The night before they're witnessing Jesus on the cross, he gave them that specific reference at a Passover meal. This bread is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood in the new covenant. Drink it as often as you... Oh, remember me as often as you drink it. And they would, they would realise at that point of what Jesus' teaching was here. Just like the Passover lamb was sacrificed and eaten and its blood was put out on the doorposts on every Israelite's house in their last night in slavery in Egypt, and it would save them from God's judgment. That's the bread that we need and that we want. That's the bread that will give us eternal life. That's the drink to drink if we're looking for peace with God. And it's not some short-term fix to make us feel good in the moment, to satisfy us temporarily, but it'll be an ultimate fix 
because Jesus is talking about sins forgiven. Jesus is talking about peace with God, freedom from God's just judgment, freedom from that perpetual conscience of guilt that weighs us down. He's talking about finding fullness of life in him for all eternity. And to do that, Jesus plans to give up his life for our sakes. He says, I'm not going to give you my bread or I'm not going to give you even the manna from heaven. I'm going to give you me. I'm going to give you all of me and it's all you really need. And so if we get back to our list that we started with, church, I want to encourage you with it. That list um, that you have before you and that we've spent some time I trust in a moment of, um, of gratitude, of, of being able to reflect and think. I want you to look at the other side of it, have a look at the symbol there. All those things that you've experienced that God has done and that he has provided for you are important and significant and maybe some of you have already written this down in amongst your list. In fact, as I've said before, they are good gifts from our Heavenly Father. But this other little symbol is the symbol of the cross that Jesus died on. It's a symbol of an empty tomb that he arose from and that's what he goes on and specifically says and explains to people he says you know um, um, those who do listen and respond they're the ones that God has given to me uh, my heavenly father has given to me and I will not lose any one of them and I will raise them up on the last day this is this is like the, the 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 ultimate provision that Jesus can do for us not only give his life but to raise us up in his resurrection and that's what all of us are promised when we trust and believe in him. That's our most satisfying experience of God's provision, bar none. It's something that we look back to as God's people. And yet it's something that points us forward to Jesus' second and final return to claim us as fully his own. And in a way, you know, it's a really complicated message. That, that passage is a pretty thick, complicated passage. Symbols, and signs pointing in different directions, but in the end, it's quite simple. As people ask him, remember in verse 28, what must we do to do the work that God requires? And Jesus says to believe. Believe. Believe in the one who he has sent. Believe in the one who died on the cross. Believe in the one who rose from death and will come again. I tell you the truth, says Jesus, the person who believes has everlasting life. And he says in verse 54, I'm going to put in my whole self. I'm going to give you all of me, my broken body, wholeheartedly. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up. Well, that's what the sign's about. It's not about food. It's not about things that satisfy us for a moment. Things that we need, absolutely. Nor is it about anything else on that list that we've written down. It's about that one symbol, something so much better, something so much satisfying. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for your immeasurable love poured out into this world through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your undeserved grace that you've shown all humanity, not just your specially chosen people, but provision that you've made possible for all people to come to faith in him, our Lord Jesus, and your Messiah, your King. Father, we confess um, that living in um, 
appropriate gratitude for what you've done for us and all the many things you give us and provide for us, uh, we can often get caught up in so many other things that tend to overshadow or distract us from the most important thing that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus. So we thank you for the opportunity to gather again to hear from your word, um, to worship you in song as we've done, to give thanks for all the things that you do for us in so many ways, big ways and in small, and also to be reminded again of the greatest miracle of all, you becoming one of us in the person of Jesus. And rather than storming your enemies, smashing them, grabbing power and setting up a new kingdom, you gave your life away. You laid down your life for your enemies and offered forgiveness while we were still enemies. And we want to thank you for this abundant grace and mercy that you've shown us. We have so many things to thank you for and we'll continue to do that now in song in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a great song to